0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Living Christian in a post-Christian world, I'll talk about that in a moment. And we're working through 1 Peter in various ways, not systematically necessarily, but Today I'm going to read four verses from 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's on page 1,221. I'll read the first two verses, and then verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Down in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. May be seated. A few years ago, a book came out entitled Unchristian the subtitle, What a New Generation Really Thinks. And in the book, the authors unpack the perceptions of roughly 16 to 30-year-olds who are outside of the faith and outside of the church, and they're trying to unpack their perceptions of Christians and of the Christian church. And one recurring perception kept coming up in their research, and I'll just use the author's words here, Christians and the church, quote, have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. So let's pause for a second and just think on that statement. We have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. How does that square with Jesus and with his way of being in this world? And his way of relating to others in this world. It seems to me he was famous for who he was for. Tax collectors. Children. Adulterers. Prostitutes. The poor. The sick. Lepers. He was for sinners. He was for people who were in need. In fact, the only group, it seems to me, he outright opposed was the religious establishment. It had gone wrong. The power of the religious establishment had gone to its head. So he opposed them way more than he opposed even the government of his time, which was the Roman Empire. I want you to think about that. He stood and opposed the religious establishment far more than he opposed the oppressive Roman government of his time. So back to the book UnChristian. The authors identified the six most common objections outsiders, younger ones, have against Christians and against the church. The broad theme, we're against too much. We're not for anyone. These are the six specific objections of these outsiders. Church and Christians are too hypocritical too focused on getting converts, anti-homosexual, too sheltered, too political, and too judgmental. Now, we could probably argue on this, but at least five of those fit into the category of what Christians oppose and what Christians are against. And it all begs the question, is the essence of the Christian faith Passionate againstness, to use one theologian's beautiful phrase. Does following Jesus primarily mean we oppose and we fight against? Is that the essence of it? And you can fill in the blank as to what it might be that we should be opposing or fighting against. See, this is our reputation, and I think it is a well earned reputation. I am not quite sure it is a well-thought-out reputation, and I am quite sure it is not the essence of what the Christian faith is really supposed to be about. We're in week two of our Living Christian in a Post-Christian Culture series, where we're using the book of 1 Peter to help us discern how to live in this culture we now live in that is unashamedly post-Christian, and obviously we can't every week summarize the previous week, so there may be things that we talked about last week that we're going not going to go over again this week. We're just going to keep moving along, and hopefully there won't be too much that is unclear as we go forward. One theologian calls the point of Peter's letter, Peter's problem. In light of the relationship of Christians to the Roman-led government of Asia Minor, where this letter was sent, how should Christians live in this cultural context of increased pressure, increased persecution, and increased marginalization? That's Peter's problem. Should they run and hide? Should they revolt against the Roman government? Should they try to improve society through a series of Benevolent efforts and programs. How then should they live? Is the question. And for our purposes in the weeks of this series. How should we live as followers of Jesus. In our current post-Christian context. A recurring theme throughout the letter of First Peter. Is reflected much and often in today's scripture reading. Let me reread portions of it. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit. Hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. As foreigners and exiles abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How should we live in a post-Christian culture? The first priority, as indicated in these words from Peter, is for followers of Jesus to possess His character, to be like Him in our inner being, so that out of the reality of who we actually are, kingdom goodness routinely and naturally and easily flows from us into the world, and into other people we interact with. We live in the culture, then, as one in whom kingdom goodness is being formed. And we live out this kingdom goodness right where we are each day, in the settings we already inhabit. And in doing so, we demonstrate the supreme goodness of God. We incarnate the wholeness of, And the goodness Jesus desires for fractured people who are living in a fractured world. How should we live in this current culture starts with personal transformation in Christ likeness. So let's talk about the good news for a moment. What comes to mind when you hear this phrase, the good news? Or you could replace that if you prefer. What comes to mind when you hear the gospel? Maybe good news about forgiveness of sins comes to mind. Or good news about life after death. Both certainly related to what good news means and what good news is. But how about good news about being authentically and fully human? Good news about the restored person we can become. Good news about the healing and the restoration of our inner being our wills, and our thoughts, and our feelings, and our relationships, our souls, so that we live the way God intended for human beings to live. And we discover how satisfying His way of living really is. Good news about the healing of past wounds. When you hear the gospel, when you hear the good news, do you think about the healing that can happen to the damage that's been done to you in the past. Good news about becoming a new person through the transforming power of Jesus at work in us through his spirit. We are not talking about a humanistic project of self-improvement with a little bit of God tacked on to give it a little extra oomph. We're not talking about that. In the Bible, this kind of deep and holistic character transformation is a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. In the language of Galatians 4, when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, here's the phrase Christ is formed in us. Or in the language of Colossians 3, when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, we take off our old self with its practices. And we put on the new self. And here's the key phrase from Colossians 3. This new self is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. When the kingdom breaks in, we are renewed in the image of our creator. We're restored. We're renewed. We are recreated. We become like him. And so the gospel of the kingdom is good news about shalom. It's a Hebrew word. If you are a write-it-down kind of person, I don't typically say these things. I don't like it when people tell me what to do, so I don't try to tell you what to do. But if you are a write-it-down kind of person, write down the word shalom. It is a Hebrew word, and every one of us that is interested in understanding What the gospel is, or what the good news is, needs to know what shalom is, because shalom is the good news, and shalom is the gospel. We have talked many times about this magnificent vision of shalom that absolutely fills the pages of the Bible. It was all over our call to worship today in Psalm 104. Shalom is a Hebrew word at quick glance. It means peace. If you look it up, it will probably say peace. But that single word is deceiving. There are oftentimes limitations of language. Sometimes our words cannot capture the fullness of an idea. Shalom means flourishing. Robust flourishing. Everything The way it is supposed to be. If you're wondering, what does shalom means, It means everything the way it was intended to be and the way it is supposed to be. It is human flourishing done God's way. So when we read of Jesus, that of the greatness of his government and peace, shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. We are reading about Shalom. When we read in Isaiah 11, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We're reading about Shalom. In Luke 4:17, Jesus stands in front of of the synagogue crowd and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's Favor, And every single person in the room that day would have rocked back in their chair and said, Ah, good news. Freedom. Restoration. Healing. God's favor. The shalom. The Messiah. Will one day bring. And then Jesus started his sermon. And I think it was the whole of his sermon. One sentence you can only wish. But he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Shalom is the flourishing, the restoration, the goodness, the newness, the wholeness, in every way we can possibly conceive it in our souls, in our relationships, in the social dynamics of culture, in the animal world and in all of creation and in millions of other ways we can't imagine. And here's the kicker all brought forth by Jesus, the good King. See, this is the good news. This is what we call the gospel. When we read of his punishment and crucifixion and resurrection, we are reading about his further and all-important defeat of all that is anti-shalom, namely sin and all of sin's bloody consequences and death and the devil. See, shalom is robust flourishing for all. It's the restoration of wholeness and well-being and flourishing down in the details of our wills and our thoughts, and our feelings, and our pasts, and the pain we have, and the marriage we have, and our government, and all of creation. Everyone and everything relating and working the way they were intended to relate and to work. Shalom is wholeness and goodness everywhere. It's the reversal of the brokenness, and the disorder, and the chaos brought on by human rebellion, and by human sin. So shalom is the restoration of all things to the way they are supposed to be. So when Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel, he meant the reign of God is now available in the person of Jesus Christ and the possibility of, of shalom has just gone to a whole new level. When we choose to follow the king and live by the terms of his kingdom, shalom comes into our lives. This is the gospel. This is the good news. When the kingdom of God is breaking in, these are such crucial ideas, wholeness comes. Goodness comes into every nook and cranny of life. There is nothing we can think of that will remain the same once the shalom of Jesus touches it. So this guy, Cornelius Plantinga, has this long and beautiful vision of shalom. I was going to just pull out his book and read it to you, but without the time. I just love this phrase. Part of shalom, he says, is each human being... Would reflect and color the light of God's presence out of the unique resources of his or her own character and essence. You catching this? You then and I become agents of shalom. As you and I are transformed by Jesus in our unique style, we become a reflection of his wholeness and goodness. And flourishing. And you know this and so do I. The world needs a whole bunch of this right now. So it can see an alternative to things Peter mentioned. Malice. Contempt. Anger. Envy. Judgment. Division. That has come to define this culture. That's the good news. That's the invitation. Let's talk for a minute about the choice And there's a quote on the screen by a guy named Robert Mulholland. I want to read it to you. By the way, the app that we've been blabbing about the last few weeks is now out. If you type in OHC Folsom, you can get it, and stuff like this will be in there, I believe, sometime this afternoon. But he writes this, everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. We're being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ, shalom, or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. Destructive not only to ourselves, but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness brokenness upon them. The direction of our spiritual growth infuses all we do with intimations of either life or death. Every single one of us is being spiritually formed in one direction or another. Toward wholeness and flourishing and shalom, Or toward fracture and discord and destruction. We are becoming a person who is infusing our world with either the life of God or with death. And so we have a choice to make. And it's not just a one time choice. It's an ongoing choice. It's even a daily choice. It's even a moment by moment choice about who we will become and what, and about what we are being, what we are being shaped by. We hate, we choose that. And what we are ultimately shaped into, we choose that. Now to be clear, spiritual formation is spiritual work accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God on our spirit. So, uh, Peter says in his second letter, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life everything we need to participate in the divine nature. So the Spirit of God initiates our transformation. Transformation is a work of God's Spirit. It starts with what the Spirit is saying to us, with what He is stirring in us. In other words, transformation is not a self-improvement project where we dig deep and try to make something happen. But there's another side to this, and Peter brings it up in our Scripture reading. Yes, God initiates, but you and I have a choice to make regarding our transformation. We have to decide... If we want this, and if we don't want this, so we choose not to do our part, not even God can make it happen, because he will not force his will on us to make us do what we don't want to do. You see, we have trained ourselves to be exactly the person we currently are. Right now, today, in this moment... You've trained yourself to be what you are. I've trained myself to be what I am. The reason we think the way that we do and respond the way that we do and react the way that we do and have the attitudes that we have is because we've trained ourselves to do and to be this. We've made the choice, in other words, to be this kind of person precisely. The choice is always before us. Peter says to his readers, rid yourselves of these various vices. He commands it. But you know this and so do I. Big deal. He commands it. They have a choice as to whether or not they're going to follow it. He commands them, abstain from sinful desires. Big deal. They have a choice. They have to choose if they want to abstain from sinful desires. The choice is always there. He says to us, like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. But... So what if he says this? They and we have to choose if we want to grow up in our salvation. I mean, Peter can't be any clearer. His language may conflict with our own understanding of the gospel or our own understanding of salvation or our own understanding of what it means to be a Christian. But Peter is perfectly clear here. He says, grow up in your salvation. In other words, Your salvation is not a stagnant status once and for all conferred upon you. It is, in fact, a dynamic process, just like human growth and development is a dynamic process. Our son Sam is 25 years old, Abby is 23, and Izzy is 21. And when they, on occasion, come to church here, if I am still cradling them in my arms, it's quite a picture, and feeding them a bottle and sitting behind that glass thing back there because they're crying during the service, then two things are for absolute certain. Number one, my back will be in very big trouble. And number two, Julie and I have got a real problem because they've not developed the way they were intended to develop. The pure spiritual milk Peter is talking about then are the practices and the relationships and the experiences that will grow us up into Christ-likeness. So the pure spiritual milk for the follower of Jesus are those practices and relationships and experiences that nourish our inter- inner being in Christ's likeness and they help to use the words of Plantinga again. Each of us reflect and color the light of God's presence out of the unique resources of our own character and essence. So we engage in the practice of celebrating communion together. We crave, using Peter's word, worshiping together. We crave praying together. We crave confessing the malice and the envy and the judgment and the slander we willfully engage in. We crave immersing ourselves in the Bible, reading it and letting it recalibrate us. Psalm 119 verse 24, Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. So we soak in the truth of God's words so we can increasingly live and flourish in this particular culture the way a human was designed and created to live and flourish in this particular culture. And we simply cannot live and cannot flourish in this culture unless we are shaped by the words and teachings and insights of God's Word. His statutes counsel us in how to live and live whole and flourish in this fractured world. Think back to what I said about the research in the book Unchristian. The title of the book reflects what people outside the faith and outside the church think about people inside the faith and inside the church. And I want us just to run head on into this. The reason the book is called Unchristian is because people outside the church think of people inside the church as unchristians. The perception is that the Christian church is filled with people whose attitudes and actions and words and reactions and perspectives and opinions and criticisms and judgments are thoroughly unchristian. There's nothing life-giving in them. I'm not saying they're right, but this is what they think. There's nothing of shalom in these perspectives and opinions and criticisms. They aren't restorative. They aren't renewing or healing actions or words or reactions. They are petty and parochial and destructive and divisive because, I think, when we put a leash around the gospel and train it to follow us around and heal and sit and lay down on command. In other words, when the gospel is about us, we make the gospel small. And when the gospel is small, we live small. And we search for ways to try to distinguish ourselves from those who are outside the church. When the gospel is small, instead of living out the goodness of God's kingdom right where we are and manifesting authentic flourishing, we settle for making policies and coming up with rules and being anti-this and against that. When the gospel is small, we invest way too heavily in the political realm to try and fight evil and force righteousness on people who don't want it. Living Christian in a post-Christian culture starts with the kingdom breaking in to our inner being. So we become more like our king. And we live and we act and we interact and we speak and we react more like our king. And in doing so, we manifest his beautiful shalom to fractured people living in a fractured world. Ruth Barton, on the screens. Your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you have experienced so far, is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as husband or wife, mother or father somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. Let me make that simple. What we're clamoring for, what we're longing for, what we want, what we're trying to manufacture, what we're trying to create is this kind of life that is fulfilling and satisfying and good. And God is saying to us, within my kingdom, under my reign, you will experience shalom like you never have. So allow me to shape you into the person you were always intended to be. Which gets us lastly to the specifics. The rubber hits the road when we get down into the specifics of what Jesus is doing in us and what He wants to do. What the Spirit wants to transform in us. And this is where you have to now give yourself your own sermon. What does the Spirit want to transform in you? In the specifics. The choice to be transformed is the choice to invite the Spirit into the specifics of our inner world and cooperate with Him in His restoration of us, in His renewal of us, in His journey toward wholeness with us. So I ask myself the question, Where am I the author of anti-shalom? Where is there discord or turmoil in my inner being? Real simply, what troubles me? What burdens me? Where is shame screaming its lies at me? Let me give you an example that's just emanating out of real life for me. I have no idea why this has surfaced. I have some idea. But it's rushed up in me like a hurricane, and I can't stop. One of the reasons why I have been um, really on edge lately in, in, in terms of an emotional edge is because there's something brewing in my own journey with regard to something that I thought God had already taken care of. I guess I was rather wrong. Sam, when he was younger through high school and into college, he played football. My daughter has played soccer. I think she started playing two months before she was born. And she continues to play uh, in college. And I've said this to you a thousand times, nothing new here, but sports have always been important to me, too important, I'm sure. But in recent weeks, details don't matter. I've seen how broken I am around this. It's no longer just something funny. There's anti-shalom in my inner world, around sports and around my kids' sports experiences. And their sports experience is just the packaging. Inside the packaging, there is some kind of deep identity stuff going on in me. And the Spirit of God has been rooting around in all of that. And I find it super annoying. It's been extremely difficult. You know, this is what I mean. I thought all this was done. I told someone the other day, I thought I had taken the elevator to the basement of this stuff, two or three floors down. And I'm looking now, and there's only about 90 other floors that I've got to go. There's a whole new level of brokenness, pain, need for transformation, and the word I'm going to use is anti-shalom. I can, I know it's in me anti flourishing anti wholeness anti goodness, and i 'll tell you it, it has been hard and it 's been annoying i don 't like being this jacked up, but i 'm jacked up, and yet at the same time there's this invitation i 'll be straight with you when I think of along the lines of um, you know well, pray about that, and then it'll go away. I go. Ugh. I certainly want to pray about it, but there's something else. It's encounter. It's Jesus, I need you to meet me in this. I I don't need, uh, you're not a magic wand God. Bzzz, gone. I need to meet you in this. I need to encounter you in a deeper way in this. I, I need the shalom of your kingdom in my inner being all around the specifics of this sports pathology. So the question for you, where specifically does Jesus want to lead you into his shalom? Peter tells his readers, rid yourselves of malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. This list is interesting to me in light of the cultural setting where Peter's readers are living. Remember, the culture they're in is increasingly hostile to them. Christians are increasingly marginalized. They're increasingly feeling attacked and under pressure. And many of the vices that Peter lists here, they are to rid themselves of, would be typical human reactions to attack and pressure and hostility. You're getting attacked so you have malice toward those who are attacking you. You're getting attacked so you deceive them so they don't think you are what you are. You're getting attacked or you're falling under pressure so you act one way to relieve the pressure, hypocrisy. You're getting attacked, you're getting under pressure, so you envy being in a situation that other people are in, where they're not in this situation, and you compare yourself to them, and then the bitterness creeps in, and the outdoing them creeps in, and then this big one, you're under pressure, and slander kicks in. Peter says, slander of every kind. What a strange thing. He's writing to people who are taking heat from the culture and he says to them, rid yourselves of malice, rid yourselves of envy, rid yourselves of slander. So let's take slander. Peter says, rid yourselves of every kind of slander. Grow up in your salvation. Be transformed. Let kingdom shalom shape your response and interactions with those who are unlike you and those who don't like you and perhaps those who are out to get you. And I got to say, that might be some profound work Jesus wants to do in the heart of his people today. Just lock in on it. Be transformed and don't slander anyone, regardless of what they do to you. I gotta give you, press into this a bit. You know what a form or kind of slander is today? Calling someone a Republican. It is. Think about it. Or a Democrat. Or a conservative with the emphasis on the "k," it's a curse kind of a word, or the liberal. These words have become slanderous in our culture. And we might as well substitute what's really behind the juice of the word, which is not so nice of a word as conservative or liberal. There's other words, many of them have four letters, that we really should be saying, because that's really what we're saying when we call someone those words. Every kind of slander. This is a conviction I'm in right now, another one. That I've used these terms, these labels, and they become rationale for degrading and dismissing other people who bear the image of God. Another form of slander comes in the form of how we think and talk and respond and react to those who are not interested in following in the way of the kingdom. They are not interested in Jesus' ideas about anger or lust or how to treat enemies or how to be with the poor. They're not interested in God's design for marriage or in His design for human sexuality. Christians and the church have trained ourselves to respond to those who think differently by slandering them, labeling them, shaking our head at them, Dismissing them and being disgusted with them. So I'll leave it at this. Where am I contributing to this anti shalom? Where am I degrading and dehumanizing other people who have been made in God's image? These are the specifics of transformation. And you have to run with your own sermon at this point. It's our choice to grow up or got a perfect. Metaphor in this room every week. We can either grow up or come to church with diapers and sit behind that glass. It's kind of the two choices set before us. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we recognize that in a gentle way, you do deep work. Deep transforming, mind bending, soul transforming, heart transforming. Will-transforming work. You give us a vision of flourishing, of wholeness. You give us Psalm 104, where things are the way they're supposed to be. You give us instruction about what to rid ourselves of and what to put on. And it all adds up to movement toward wholeness and goodness and flourishing, Good news breaking in in every quadrant of our being. I just want to keep encouraging you to think, where is there anti-shalom in your inner being? A way of thinking. A way of seeing the world. Pain you carry. Judgments you have. Criticisms you make. Slandering you do. A perspective... That while you feel that it is justified and rational, when you stack it up to the person of Jesus Christ, and you ask yourself the question, if he were me, would he think this way? Be specific. And then deal with the choice. Do I want to be transformed in that? If so, what would be next? Spirit, we thank you for the work you're up to. And uh, thank you for your graciousness to us and pray that we'll continue to uh, invite you in and let your kingdom break out that we might participate in your flourishing. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.